Welcome to CP's Deep Dive. I'm Colleen Patrick with audio engineer Chris Bayman. I interview authors of nonfiction books I have narrated, books written by authors making a positive difference in our world, tackling the tough challenges we face. Today, we're taking on one of the most important issues in American culture. Drugs, legal, illegal, the war on, the history of, drug courts, rehab, 12-step and other treatment programs whose goal is sobriety for those attending. I thought I knew a lot about the subject, but Jennifer Murphy's book, Illness or Deviance, Drug Courts, Drug Treatment, and the Ambiguity of Addiction, is a real eye-opener for anyone who has been affected by drugs or who cares about America's policies concerning drugs, because it spells out how our economic, health care, law enforcement, governmental and judicial systems intersect when it comes to the creation of drugs, legal and illegal, distribution, legal and illegal, use, overuse, and law enforcement's involvement with drugs, including drug courts. And believe me when I say, follow the money to find out how U.S. policies, most of which have failed, have developed over the past couple centuries. Thank you, Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at Penn State Berks, Jennifer Murphy, for taking time to chat on CP's Deep Dive. First, did I fairly characterize your book? I think that is a good characterization, and thank you for having me on the show. Sure. Well, let's start with the history of drug use, which I found fascinating uh, in your book, and abuse in the U.S. How and when did it become an issue? That's a really great question. Uh, It cycles into becoming a serious issue in various moments throughout history, and that's one of the ideas that I try to highlight in the book that when we think about drug crises, when we think about drugs, drug addiction being a serious problem in the United States, it's not new. tend to go through these cycles of thinking about it as a serious problem, thinking about how to deal with it, coming up with some new policies. And then usually the problem just kind of subsides. Well, I should say our attention to the problem subsides for a while. And at some point in the future, we pick up maybe another drug that we think is a big problem, and we put a lot of attention to it. But these things tend to be cyclical. And as far as our policy goes, have been going on for over 100 years in the United States. We thought of heroin as a serious crisis in the very early 20th century. And a lot of the concerns that we have about today's opiate crisis were a lot of the same things that people were talking about back then. The role of the medical profession in leading people to addiction, what the criminal justice system involvement should be, how does treatment intertwine with that. So these are issues that we periodically talk about and think about in society. So how were they dealt with in the early 1900s or even the 1800s? Well, if you go back to the 1800s, we started developing some laws around various substances. I mean, there were there were virtually no it wasn't a legal issue and there wasn't the importation of a lot of drugs at that point. But you see in the early 20th century, the increasing use of various forms of opium, opium dens actually existing in the United States where people could legally go and and consume uh, smoke opium. And then you see other opiate derived 
substances come about in popularity, morphine, eventually heroin. So the early 20th century is when we start considering opiates to be really serious issue. And we can't really also disentangle that from our view of Chinese immigrants. And this is another common theme uh, when we talk about drug policy history in the United States that we tend to get concerned about certain substances that we tie to either immigrant groups or people that we already consider to be somewhat outside or a lower level of our society, racial minorities, poorer people. Uh, So drugs get tied to these groups, these what sociologist Craig Reinerman calls dangerous classes of people, people who are already considered undesirable in our society. And that's when a lot of these problems surface. So in the early 20th century, you had opiates getting tied to Chinese immigrants and then eventually to African-Americans. And that's when it started being considered a serious, serious problem. And that led to the first national prohibition, basically, of narcotics with the Harrison Narcotic Act in 1914. And that essentially, it's, it's a complicated law, but it essentially makes all substances that are derived from opium and coca, coca leaves, illegal in the United States. And then you have the criminalization of marijuana in the 1930s with the Marijuana Tax Act, essentially making marijuana illegal. Between that, obviously, we had a little experiment with banning alcohol, with alcohol prohibition. So like I said, we go through cycles of which substance we see as the most serious, and then we generally develop some policy around trying to eliminate the use of it. So if I'm hearing you correctly, isn't it true that, as you say, essentially populations of color are identified as being the issue and the problem, and there are policies that are built around that notion. Is that correct? Absolutely. I mean, if you look at the propaganda that's used in the 1930s to make marijuana illegal, that gets very much tied to Mexican immigrants and to African Americans, in particular jazz musicians. It gets associated with that group of people. And that is one of the things that really increases public sentiment and public support for doing something criminally about this issue. And we see that throughout the decades, you know, going into the 1980s, look at the policies developed around the criminalization of crack cocaine versus powder cocaine, where you have Congress enact a 100 to 1 disparity in the mandatory minimum for someone possessing... That's mandatory minimum jail sentence. Right, where the amount of powder cocaine that someone has to be in possession of is 100 times the amount of crack cocaine to trigger a mandatory minimum possession charge. And that's based on the assumption at the time that crack cocaine is a different substance, that it has a different effect on the body and that it requires more serious legal consequences. But what research 
you know, has shown and, you know, was was also showing at the time was that they're not different substances. You know, they, they come from the exact same substance and crack cocaine is not more addictive than powder cocaine. And it doesn't cause people to become very violent in a way that powder cocaine doesn't. But what you do see is the populations that use these substances are different. So crack cocaine, much more commonly used in urban areas. So people of color, poor people are using that substance. It's a much cheaper form of cocaine. So it's more affordable. And whites, wealthier people using powder cocaine. So you can't really disentangle that from the policies that are developed. They're racist policies, even though, you know, I don't believe that people in Congress were sitting there thinking that they were acting on any kind of racist notion, but they were racist policies. Right. Give us an example of the differences in sentencing for the use of crack cocaine versus powder cocaine. So, like I said, the the mandatory minimum five-year sentence for possession was only five grams for crack cocaine, but it was 500 grams for powder cocaine. Now, this does get changed in the Obama administration. Congress changes that disparity, I believe it's to a, a 17 to 1 disparity from the 100 to 1. So still a stronger penalty with crack cocaine versus powder cocaine, but nothing not as similar as, as not as dramatic as what it was in the 1980s. But you do see, you know, with a combination of those kinds of mandatory minimum sentences and then the enforcement of drug laws and the money going toward law enforcement, especially in the late 80s through the 1990s, you see a lot of resources going toward law enforcement to deal with uh, drug issues. So the number of arrests, uh, not surprisingly, go up. The targeting of drug crimes is much more common in urban areas. So you see a disproportionate number of arrests among people of color, and that subsequently leads to disproportionate number of people serving prison sentences for drug offenses. Right. And to be very clear about that, as many white people as black people were using drugs, it's just that the black people were targeted and arrested because they were caught using drugs. Correct. So surveys of drug use tend to find very similar rates of drug use among different racial groups. So the disparity that we see in arrests and sentencing do not reflect the different any kind of difference in drug use or drug selling, I should also say. If there have been studies that show that people who commit drug offenses in, in the form of selling drugs are not more likely to be of color. But again, who gets arrested for those offenses is disproportionate. The big picture with the so-called war on drugs is that agencies and people who are immersed in law enforcement get big bucks for doing that work. Is that correct? Sure. I mean, there was a lot of resources going toward law enforcement in the 1980s, 1990s, early 2000s. The amount of federal funding uh, to fight the quote-unquote war on drugs, uh, the money every year would increase, and the vast majority of that money would go toward law enforcement. A much smaller proportion of that budget would go toward treatment or prevention. 
But even one of the things that I, I try to highlight in the book is that even that distinction becomes muddy because one of one of the drug policies that I looked at in the early 2000s, uh, George W. Bush's drug policy outlines the different programs that money is going to go toward. And it talks about uh, money for treatment versus money for, for law enforcement or interdiction. Uh, but one of the things that they highlight as money going toward treatment is the money that they're putting toward drug courts. Uh, and drug courts are not treatment, 100% treatment, I guess I should say, right? They incorporate drug treatment into criminal case processing, but there it's, it's a judge, it's uh, the district attorney's office involved. I mean, these are still arms of the criminal justice system, but the national policy is basically calling them treatment. So the, in drug court, explain how the drug court works, because essentially you have a judge there who has a lot of power, and he or she can determine who goes to treatment and who goes to jail, right? Sure. So drug courts, uh, which now, I mean, they have exploded in number. They're in every state. Many other countries have adopted the drug court model based on what the United States developed uh, they developed in the United States in the late 1980s as possible way to deal with the crowded caseload that we saw because of the war on drugs. So you have money going toward law enforcement. So law enforcement is making a lot of arrests and you have these drug offenses, um, you know, really, ta- really taking up a lot of resources in local courts. And I have to say, the the fact is that the so-called war on drugs basically has a record of failure. All that money spent, and it has basically been a failure. Isn't that the reason that they started creating these drug courts to try and be more effective in dealing with the issue? Yes. I mean, there, there are multiple reasons for the creation of drug courts. Uh, one is economic. So... Uh, it's much cheaper to process someone through a drug court uh, than to incarcerate them. Uh, another is ideological, where um, a lot of uh, people who work in the system were talking about what they call the revolving door, where they would arrest someone, uh, that person uh, would, you know, serve a short prison sentence or maybe go on probation and then be arrested again. So they called it the revolving door. They wanted to try to figure out a different way of dealing with drug offenders that would hopefully prevent them from committing future crimes um, because of their own drug addiction. Uh, And so there are a number of different reasons that they're developed. Um, But one is definitely, um, you know, that the, the, the courts basically and the prisons couldn't maintain uh, the system that existed. They couldn't. They couldn't keep arresting and incarcerating everyone, or unless you wanted to keep um, opening more courts and more prisons. Uh, so it did become an alternative way to deal with what you know was the the logical outcome of the war on drugs. And you know, to to talk about your point about the war on drugs being a failure, all. Good research I have seen indicates that um, all of the reasons that the federal government began a war on drugs, um, you know, to reduce drug use, 
to reduce the number of drugs coming into the country, um, to prevent new people from using drugs. All of the reasons that they gave for the importance of meetings show not, not to actually have occurred. Drugs today are cheaper um, than they were in the 1970s, you know, thinking about the current opiate crisis that we're in, um, the price and the purity of heroin today on the street is, well, the price is so much lower and the purity is so much higher than what it was in the early 1970s. So, so yes, by all accounts, uh, the war on drugs was, was a failure. Drug courts dictate who goes to jail and who gets treatment. So how how is that worked out? I mean, I've read your book, so I know I know the answer. I'm holding up my hand, <laughs> but but, uh, well, uh, but be, tell us about it. One of my classes, uh, <laughs> I'm going to call on. But tell us about um, it. How how are they? How are the people selected to go into treatment in the in jail? Sure. So, drug courts are developed, like I said, in they're started in the late '80s and they really explode. Uh, throughout the 90s, 2000s to today. I mean, they're still they're still increasing in number as we speak. Um, so they have um, some differences across different courts, but there are also some similarities. Uh, so one of the components of drug court is that the offender uh, had to have committed a nonviolent offense. So uh, at the moment, drug courts don't include people who commit violent offenses. Um, so we're talking about... Um, some possession, although um, most possession cases now are dealt with um, in in a different manner, but uh, at the time there would be some possession cases and also a lot of drug selling cases. Uh, so that was one component that the offense had to be nonviolent. The offender, it, there, there's rules based on how many prior offenses they could have. Most drug courts would say they couldn't have more than two prior convictions, uh, and they had to be assessed as needing drug treatment. So they had to be evaluated and uh, sent to drug treatment um, as part of the drug court process. So yes, there is a selection process that goes on, so they determine who's eligible for this program, uh, and who's not ba- largely based on the offense and then secondarily based on uh, what kind of treatment the person might need for their own drug use. And just at that level, how how does that work out um, in terms of the types of people, and you know where I'm going with this, the types of people who end up in jail as opposed to the types of people who end up in treatment? Sure. So... Because they're targeting nonviolent offenders, um, there's a whole group of people who are not eligible for drug court. So, for instance, um, a violent offense doesn't necessarily even mean that a person committed a violent act like assault or murder. Uh, It could be that they were carrying a gun in the commission of a crime and then it gets labeled as a violent offense. So if they're selling drugs and when they're arrested, they are in possession of a firearm, that could be considered a violent offense. So that would make them not eligible for drug court. Um, So you already are taking out um, people and selecting out Uh, who is eligible based on the offense. Uh, And then also, and this goes to the particular court and who the court might target. 
uh, different courts might try to target different types of offenders. So the drug court that I spent the most time studying in my book, they targeted uh, drug sales cases. So they were people largely male, uh, young. Um, my The drug court that I study was, was in a large city uh, with a large uh, African-American population. So those who were being arrested for selling drugs, um, you know, the, the, the typical drug court client was a young black male. And they were arrested for uh, some kind of felony level of drug sales. So typically they were selling things like heroin, um, crack cocaine, powder cocaine, other kinds of, of drugs. But they need to be assessed as also having a drug problem themselves to be eligible for drug court. So some uh, people did have serious drug use problems and, and would be sent to treatment. But what I found was because of the targeting of these people selling drugs, that a lot of them did not clinically really have serious drug use problems. Uh, so they would end up being sent to drug treatment for things like, uh, quote unquote, marijuana addiction. And marijuana addiction could be the person smokes marijuana once or twice a week. Or in some cases I saw, you know, maybe once every month or so. Uh, so if we're talking about alcohol use, we probably wouldn't consider that alcoholism. But because it's an illicit substance, basically any use of it makes the person eligible for drug court and in need of drug treatment, uh, even though they probably don't really have a significant problem with using drugs. So how does it shake out that the treatment facilities and the drug courts work together? When I was doing my research, um, which a lot of it was um, in the early 2000s, you know, through, through 2005, 2006, uh, what I saw going on was um, drug treatment programs had a steady influx of clients from the criminal justice system. Uh, so through drug courts and other diversion programs, uh, drug treatment programs that could maintain that relationship with the criminal justice system to get those referrals were doing quite well. Economically. Right. There, there's a steady stream of clients coming in who uh, they don't have to worry about insurance. They don't have to worry about whether or not this person is going to be able to pay their treatment bill. You know, the, the criminal justice system's footing the bill. So it was a huge incentive for them to foster these relationships with the criminal justice system to get these clients. What was interesting with, with one of the treatment programs that I studied was I found after I finished my book, years later uh, from when I did my research, they actually ended their relationship with the drug court. Uh, they found it that over time, the drug court was just sending them fewer and fewer people and to have kind of a separate case management system for them was too too burdensome for them. So eventually, economically, it didn't make sense for them to maintain this relationship. Uh, now, I don't know why their referrals went down. You know, definitely the number of referrals coming from drug court was not going down. So they, they just must have been sending them to other treatment programs. And I don't know why that it wasn't their program anymore. But um, what's interesting is recently, because of in 
more discussion about the need for treatment for people who are in this current opioid epidemic um, because of that increase in uh, resources going toward treatment, a lot of these programs now are looking to expand their treatment for opioid use. Um, so they're not as concerned about people coming through a drug court who maybe have a marijuana problem or a crack cocaine problem. Uh, they're focused on the money coming for treatment of opioids. Money, like I say, follow the money here. There's another part of it, and the title of your book is Illness or Deviance. And what I read was that it is considered an illness, but it's treated like a deviance. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Explain that. Sure. So the question I had in starting this project was, how do those notions of illness and deviance get worked out in places that manage drug addiction? Uh, and the reason that I, I started from that perspective was um, in reading the history of alcoholism and drug addiction, there is a movement of thinking about these issues uh, into more medical Pro, into thinking about them as more medical problems. Um, we see this over time. An illness. With alcoholism first, uh, alcohol becomes the drug that gets medicalized before other substances. Uh, but we see this progression of, of moving from thinking about uh, alcoholism and drug addiction as moral failings into thinking about them as medical problems. Uh, so the, the development of formal drug treatment programs, insurance coverage going toward those programs, research around drug treatment, these are all markers of thinking about addiction as a disease, certainly, and maybe some kind of medical problem. At the same time, uh, having grown up uh, in the United States and uh, spending most of my childhood in the 1980s, I saw the public service announcements. I saw the Just Say No campaign. Uh, I saw the messages that were constantly being reinforced by the media and in everyday conversation as well about people who use drugs being immoral, being bad people, being weak-willed. So there was this deviant aspect of it as well. So I was interested in the places that manage people who use drugs. What, what are the messages they're sending out? How do they think about drug addiction? Uh, and that's why I chose a drug court to kind of look at it from the criminal justice angle and then drug treatment programs to look at it within drug treatment. I mean, you would think that in a drug treatment program, it would be considered a serious illness that requires medical attention and everything would be a very medicalized approach to dealing with drug addiction. And what I found out that that wasn't exactly the case, um, that there was still a whole lot of stigma in drug treatment programs themselves. Meaning? The people working in drug treatment um, could have stigmatizing views of people who use drugs mm. uh, that were communicated to to those people. Uh, the setup of treatment itself, um, so looking at the regulations around methadone 
uh, for instance, and the dispensing of methadone treatment um, and how that is a stigmatizing process uh, for a person. And, um, you know, even though it's on some level the most medicalized form of treatment we have in drug addiction, it is certainly not medicalized in the same way of that treatment for other diseases has been. Like cancer. Yeah, diabetes, um, you know, even other things that we, we look at the person's lifestyle as part of the problem. So I was interested in trying to figure out, well, how does this contradiction get worked out in these different places, um, which is why illness or deviance question mark uh, became the title of the book. And, and what you see in these institutions that deal with addiction is that they have a very ambiguous notion of addiction. Um, they overlap ideas of addiction being a disease or a medical problem with ideas that addiction is a moral problem as well. And these get worked out in drug court, they get worked out in drug treatment, uh, and they're just constantly reinforced at all different levels. It is a crazy maker. You have an illness, and therefore you need treatment, but the treatment can be law enforcement, a drug court, it can be a 12-step program. Don't the treatment centers, a lot of them focus on 12-step programs? Oh, yes. Uh, 12 steps uh, is the most common form of treatment that you'll find in even in formal treatment programs. Uh, I've seen some surveys of drug treatment programs that find at least 80% use some 12-step methods in their programs. So how, how successful are these treatment programs? How successful is the 12-step program? Well, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of good research to reveal that. Um, treatment programs are not required to do any kind of assessment as far as how successful their program is. Uh, so a lot of times they don't do it themselves. They don't necessarily collect that data themselves to see how successful they are. Uh, 12, we, we have very, very little research on 12-step uh, groups and the effectiveness of the 12-step model for, for treatment because uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, these 12-step groups, um, they have, you know, the anonymity is a central component of their philosophy, um, and they don't see the need to engage in any kind of formal evaluation. Um, you know, to to some people who go through those programs, they are they are very successful. Some people uh, have a great deal of success in maintaining um, a life of not using drugs anymore uh, or alcohol by going through a twelve step program. The vast majority of people probably do not. Um, they estimate that probably 95% of people who have tried 12 steps, uh, it doesn't work for them. And that's, um, you know, again, there's limited research, but that's uh, what gets cited as um, the the estimate based on on what little research has been done and knowing the number of people who have tried it. So how about your work? Are people 
paying attention to it? Are people responding to it in ways that will improve this relationship? Because drugs are still going to be used, abuse is still going to happen, and a lot of lives are being wrecked because of it. But one, one thing that your book pointed out is that a lot of people don't get out of that swinging door. I mean, we are definitely in a moment of reform around drug policy, and I would love to take full credit for that, that someone 10 years ago, you know, uh, who had a different perspective read my book, and and they're making new laws and and thinking about different uh, ways of dealing with people who use drugs. Uh, I think when my book came out, um, we were in this... Uh, this shift in our in our larger thinking about drug issues. Uh, we saw that the war on drugs was a failure, um, that we can't incarcerate our way out of drug problems, uh, that some people are just always going to use drugs. Now, that idea, I'm not so sure is is very prevalent. I don't I don't know if our if our notion of why we need to change drug policy right now is so much like we have this more nuanced understanding of, of drug use and people who use drugs. I think it has more to do with um, a, a policy that did not work. And so looking for alternatives to that, uh, a recognition that people who committed nonviolent drug offenses should not be serving 20, 30 years in prison uh, for those kinds of offenses. So we definitely had this national shift in thinking about this and with the current opioid epidemic, uh, thinking about how treatment needs to be better used as part of the solution. But one of my concerns that uh, I try to bring up in the book is that we tend to think about drug treatment as this uh, panacea for dealing with drug issues that, oh, if if we just give people drug treatment then there won't be any more drug problems. Uh, And unfortunately, I don't think that that's exactly the case. I think that um, the reality of drug treatment, and this is shown in research, is that people will need uh, many different treatment episodes uh, before they are able to effectively combat their drug problem. So one is the reality that Uh, just sending someone to treatment is likely not going to cure their addiction, that this is um, an issue that needs long-term treatment, that needs multiple treatment attempts for for people to to get the help they need to get to the the level that they need to be at. Another thing is um, just looking within drug treatment programs and looking at what they do and trying to really make them more accountable for the treatment that they give. Uh, You mentioned uh, previously how um, stigmatizing treatment can be uh, and punitive. Uh, And one of the things that I found in these treatment programs was the use of punishment as a form of treatment. I mean, it's very difficult to think of other diseases, other illnesses, that when a person is in treatment, punishment becomes a central component of that treatment. Uh, So one example, like I saw in the methadone clinic, 
was if someone missed an appointment, um, missed a counseling session, missed a group meeting, uh, they would often be punished with changing their medication time. So methadone treatment requires the person to visit the clinic every single day to get methadone. Most people that I saw going through the program wanted to be medicated in the morning because of the way methadone works. You know, it alleviates uh, the physical symptoms of withdrawal. It helps, I think, psychologically with the idea of not using drugs that day. Except it is a drug. Methadone is a drug. So you're treating a drug drug issue with a drug. Right. It's, it, it is uh, an opiate. Um, now, it's a semi-synthetic opiate, and the way it affects the brain is very different than so, some other opiates like heroin. Uh, so in the right dose, um, a person wouldn't feel high from taking methadone, but what they would feel is uh, not sick uh, and not in physical discomfort um, that they're, because their body is addicted to using some other opiate like heroin or, or prescription opi- opioid. That's not even touching upon the overdose of methadone, the, uh, the deaths from overdose, methadone overdose that have taken place. Sure, methadone is sold on the street. It is, it is something that people take to, to have you know, to have a drug experience. So, it, yeah, absolutely, it, it's an illicit drug at the same time. Um, but like I was saying, in the, in the, in the correct dose, uh, it should not produce uh, a high for the person taking it and certainly wouldn't have, you know, the, the risks associated with using it. They, they shouldn't overdose on it, you know, based on a prescribed amount that a doctor would give them. So if you had your druthers and an unlimited budget, what would you recommend for people who are dealing with this issue? That's a great question. Uh, I would say that there are a number of ways to deal with this issue. One is we do need to expand drug treatment and drug treatment programs for people who need them. Uh, so we definitely need more resources to go to drug treatment. Um, we need high quality drug treatment. And I think with resources that that would help, you know, there's an extremely high turnover rate in people who work in drug treatment programs, counselors. Uh, There's a high level of counselor burnout. Uh, Like I explore in the book, there's stigmatizing things about drug treatment that happen that I think need to be eliminated from the way drug treatment programs work. Uh, I think they should be in medical facilities. I think they should be in hospitals and other kinds of medical centers and fully integrated into medical treatment. I think doctors need to be better educated and trained on how to deal with drug addiction, how to recognize it and how to talk to a person about it and possibly how to be a part of the treatment process. Um, But everything is very disconnected right now. The People in drug treatment, drug treatment programs are physically separate from other he- types of health care. Um, the people working in them tend to not have the level of training in, in addiction that they probably should have. Uh, some drug treatment programs don't even require 
that a counselor has a bachelor's degree, you know? So, so there's definitely a lot resource wise that we can put into treatment to make it much more effective using best practices, using, uh, destigmatizing methods. Um, so that when a person goes to treatment, they're going to get the best level of care that they can get. Uh, we need to recognize then that one episode of treatment might not be enough or that the treatment episode needs to be a lot longer. Current insurance isn't going to cover unlimited drug treatment inpatient or outpatient. Uh, so resources, again, um, to cover the amount of treatment that someone might need. Uh, it's not a one size fits all. You know, insurance plans might only cover a couple of weeks inpatient or maybe 12 weeks outpatient. But the person who is seeking treatment might need much more than that, and they should have access to that high-quality treatment that they need. I think also most uh, simple drug possession cases should be decriminalized, so you don't have the the strong punitive response that we've had uh, for people in possession of drugs. You know, a lot of places are have uh, legalized marijuana, a number of states. Uh, you're in California, right? Uh, Washington State. Washington, there you go. <laughs> right. So, you know, just looking at what some of these states have done, I think is is progressive as far as moving our policy forward and trying to think about the issue and focus on real problems. Um, there are problems associated with drugs and people who use drugs, but just kind of having these broad policies that all drugs are equal and possession of, of any amount of a, of a substance is is a, is a strong results in a strong criminal penalty is just um, it's just not good policy. What about prophylactic measures that is to say preventing drug use and abuse from the get-go? I think that we need to have honest conversations about drugs and drug use, uh, especially with young people. I don't think it's been done well in this country. I don't think the drug prevention programs that we did put a lot of money into in the 80s, 90s, 2000s that exist today uh, have been effective. Uh, the DARE program, for instance, you know, it's developed for my generation largely, uh, was found to be completely ineffective. But yet all of the money that went into that program and that is still in existence today, even despite all of the research that shows that it's not effective. Just say no. Just say no, right? These aren't effective messages. So I think having realistic conversations about drugs and the effect of drugs and also the addictions that occur from medical treatment. People who are given drugs, opioids, oh, to right. treat actual conditions, medical conditions, who end up being addicted. Absolutely. And a lot of that is, I think, was due to a lack of education. You know, um, doctors not really understanding what they were prescribing and what the effects of those substances would be. And part of that is because we don't have honest conversations about drugs. And we just try to put them in this category of bad, don't do it. And it's just not realistic. And we need to have better education and better conversations about it. Right. And also, I understand that some doctors now are 
are going too far the other way and they're restricting pain medications for patients who are actually in a lot of pain because they don't have a clear understanding of how to effectively use a certain type of drug. Well, Jennifer Murphy, thank you so much for taking time for CP's Deep Dive. Jennifer Murphy is an associate professor of criminal justice at Penn State Berks, author of Illness or Deviance, Drug Courts, Drug Treatment, and the Ambiguity of Addiction. Join us for our next CP's Deep Dive, when I'll be speaking with another author of a nonfiction book I've narrated, Who is Making a Difference? Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colleen Patrick with audio engineer Chris Bayman. Chris also composed and performs our theme song. We record at Bayman Studio. To contact us, Chris is at BaymanStudio.com. I'm at ColleenPatrick.com. Let's make a difference. Let's make a difference.